My name is Maya Deary. This episode is part of a series called the Waves to Wisdom Interviews. The project is a simple one. I seek out people I admire, surfers who seem to me to have ocean-centered wisdom practices. Usually I ask them to share a surf session and after we've ridden some waves together, talk to me about their oceanic habits, about surfing, work, meaning, anything that comes up. All of the episodes in this podcast so far have spoken to the benefits and beauty of a long, intimate relationship between two bodies, the surfer and the ocean. This one's a little different. Michael Coleman has been a surfer for more than 40 years. Just over eight years ago, he was diagnosed with a debilitating illness that meant he had to face letting go of riding waves and eventually getting in the water at all. But the waves continue to infuse his life with wisdom, both practical and profound. He and his wife, Ruth Coleman, were generous enough to share some of Michael's story. And although we couldn't be in the ocean in the same place and time, both Coleman's left me so deeply inspired, I've carried them with me into almost every wave I've ridden since our time together. Oceanic wisdom comes in many forms. In her book, A Field Guide to Getting Lost, Rebecca Solnit wrote about the way hermit crabs look for shells that weren't really made for them and then mold their soft bodies to fit the shape of them. A set of internal claws clings to the shell while the external claws do their work in the world. She goes on, quote, Many love stories are like the shells of hermit crabs, though others are more like chambered nautiluses whose architecture grows with the inhabitant and whose abandoned smaller chambers are lighter than water and let them float in the sea, end quote. My time with the Colemans told two love stories, their own and Michael's long passion for living life to the utmost. Welcome to Waves to Wisdom. If you are comfortable with it, would you tell us your name, your age, and how long you've been surfing? My name is Michael Coleman. I'm 60 years old. I've been surfing since 1975. Fantastic. And, uh, and where did you first learn to surf? Agonquit Beach. Agonquit Beach. Maine. Maine. Okay. Uh, and so you, you were a young man at that point. His junior or senior year in high school, um, as a summer job, he was a lifeguard. So you were probably 17. I think you were, yeah, 16, 17, 18, when he first started. Okay. And this is, uh, this, as I was just telling the two of you all, this is an unusual interview because usually there are two of us. Uh, do you want to tell us why there are three of us? I so he said, as you can probably hear, I can't speak very well because I have ALS. And so Ruthie is speaking for me or can understand me pretty well. Mm -hmm. So I'm Ruth, Michael's wife, and we've known each other since before he was 17. Mm -hmm. <laughs> oh, wow, I didn't so know you, that part of the story. So you can do the math, oh. and uh, <laughs> that's why I'm good at mm -hmm. understanding him. Probably in lots of ways. Yeah. Not just this one. <laughs> yes, yes. 
Um, and so uh, I believe I recall you saying you surfed until about five years ago. Mm-hmm. Yes, until about five mm-hmm. years ago. Okay, mm-hmm. okay. Um, and did, I mean, starting to surf at 16 or 17, you know, one is not fully formed, certainly at that age. Mm-hmm. Um, do you feel like surfing impacted the adult that you grew into? Yes. Yeah, I mean, um, it was the impetus, it gave him the impetus to travel, mm-hmm. made him want to travel to go other places for surfing. So learning about other cultures. So surfing gave you the the desire to travel, and then traveling gave you the desire to learn more about other cultures. Okay. Oh, you like to go places where surfing is available, but it's not like the only thing the place is known for. It's like it doesn't overwhelm the location, what was already there. Yeah. Yeah. So we're uh, in your living room of your beautiful new house. This is your downsizing house, I understand, mm-hmm. and now being empty nesters in Rockport, Maine. Um, Rockport's not known for surfing either. No. <laughs> no. Uh, how did you wind up choosing Rockport? Michael took a, a motorcycle trip. Barry had given him mm-hmm. um, just some little ad for a piece of land or something that was randomly... Mm-hmm. In Rockport, well, I had never really been here other than driving through, and um, Michael took a motorcycle ride and came up and looked at it and put some money down. <laughs> oh my goodness! Really? And we were married then, and we were thinking about building or buying a house, but we hadn't really been thinking about that. And we were thinking about moving out of Southern Maine because it was just going through a lot of changes at that time. That explosion of condos and it just felt I don't know it didn't feel right to us but um so yeah that was kind of random so he Mm -hmm. put a down payment on that land and continued paying for it for about a year and then um the year after we got married we I applied for jobs down here and we came up here and built our first house (laughs) wow so you had to travel to surf did you get to do that often? Um, it felt like it. At that time, you were working for yourself, so he had you had flexibility. Yeah. And how often do you think you you went down to surf? Whenever there was when the waves were good, that's the whole thing about the weather band. That's why we were always listening to the NOAA weather band. Will you tell that story? (laughs) Just that before the internet and um, the way that you'd know about surf coming in Maine would be to listen to the NOAA weather, and it would you would surfers would be thinking ahead because certain conditions that Noah would tell you about would indicate whether a swell and then waves were coming. So mm-hmm. Michael would just listen to that all the time uh, that he could. He'd fall asleep uh, <laughs> listening to it. Uh, oh, it was an automated voice. Uh, 
on a loop. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it was annoying to everybody else, but Michael loved mm-hmm. listening to that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Did you go on some surf-related adventures in your 20s before the kids came along? We started with the international trips actually when we had kids. Mm-hmm. For surfing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, Dad, Michael, <laughs> did sur- all of our traveling were to locations where there were beaches. <laughs> so you didn't, there were no family trips that didn't involve at least some surf? Why would there be? <laughs> also, it just kind of made sense because living in Maine, when you want to go away is in the winter, so where you want to go is someplace that's warm. So it, that, that worked. And in the summer, we didn't want to go away from Maine because that's when Maine is great. Yeah, there were, right. We saw many other things as a result of surf trips. Absolutely. It was a force for good. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah he, would, he would get up early and go surfing, and there were still lots of family adventures. Yeah. One of the premises of this project is my, uh, my untested theory that for some people who have this regular practice of surfing, of interacting with the ocean in this completely immersive, expansive way, that it helps them figure their life out, that it can make them better people or put them in touch with something bigger than themselves. Uh, do you think, am I onto something? Is there any part of that that seems valid to you? Um, can, I, can I just say something while you're thinking? Um, I heard, it has struck me now in retrospect, I, di- I didn't really get it at the time, but Michael used to talk about surfing as um, just being really pure and clean, that he would feel really clean and his mind would feel really clean. And it, in retrospect, I realized it was like before the trendiness of mindfulness mm-hmm. and in the moment, um, that was exactly how you would describe things, mm-hmm. is that you liked it because you, could, you were only focused on that. That's mm-hmm. like all there was mm-hmm. because you have to. You have to be paying attention to the, you know, the waves and the sets and the, you know, what's happening mm-hmm. with the weather and all of that. And so, I, like, I didn't, it, that didn't register to me at the time because it was before all that talk mm-hmm. about mindfulness mm-hmm. and being in the moment. But now, in retrospect, I look back and I think that's how you always talked about it, is that's what you liked about it, mm-hmm. is that you would be out there, you know, not necessarily alone because there's other people surfing, but you would be so intensely focused that it sort of like wiped your mm-hmm. mind clear. Is there any other way in which it had practical or impractical benefits? Mm-hmm. So let me try to some, just make sure I got it. So you're saying in surfing there's a lot of failure and you fall and you fall and you fall and you fall again and you have to get back up. Nobody's telling you you have to get back up, but you just, you do it. And so the feeling of then when you, you do get back up after all those falls and then you have success, that's a really powerful 
feeling, that resilience. It changes you, teaches you. Patience. It teaches you all of those things like patience. Keep keep trying, getting up again. And those apply outside. That's what you said at the end there, that 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 resilience, that keep trying even when you've been knocked down, that that somehow you internalize that and it, you feel like it, you applied it in other places. Even today. In your current health situation, that resilience and ability to adapt has helped you with ALS. Yeah. How long has it been since you've been able to surf? Five or six years, and he was diagnosed with ALS eight more than eight years ago. Um, so you still surf for a couple of years, like after you had ALS, but you weren't as greatly affected um, by it as you are now. As the progression continued, it got harder. He remembers a time in Costa Rica after he had ALS when his legs weren't affected that badly, but one of his arms in particular was, and he felt like he was paddling in circles because one arm was weak, one arm was strong. And how did that feel? <laughs> he said at that time he was more focused on getting out to the waves before Carl, <laughs> one of his buddies. So that bothered you? For that reason, okay. <laughs> so, are are there any other ways in which let's let's think about before ALS, in which you think that surfing might have had a positive influence on your life? I think. Can I say one? Mm-hmm. And while you're thinking again, um, I think that you you just always had tremendous energy, and I think it was an outlet for your energy. I think, I don't know if you even feel that way about it, but, and then looking back on thinking how you you said it always, that's just what you liked about it, how it just kind of wiped your mind clean. And I think it was that, that, you know, that it takes a lot of physical effort to surf, Mm -hmm. but it also had that meditative quality Mm -hmm. and that you, I just remember you being almost like driven Mm -hmm. to get there and then Mm -hmm. you would just feel like cleansed Mm -hmm. or something after you, after you did it. And you always did a lot of sports, remember? Mm -hmm. So, and and Mm -hmm. I think then when you have less opportunity for, for sports, team sports kind of in your life, that surfing kind of fulfilled that, that Mm -hmm. need for that Mm -hmm. physical activity, but it also was having that other you know, mindfulness, mm-hmm. meditative effect on you. When you could first see the waves. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. You couldn't wait, yeah. In minutes, 
You could get out of your truck and be in the water in minutes. <laughs> Someone would say, what do you think, Mike? You know, looking at the surf and, and he'd already be moving and saying, I'm, I'm not going to think about it. I'm just getting in the water. Yeah. So uh, earlier, you got out a copy of Surfer Magazine from 1990, was it? Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, there yeah. in the pages of Surfer Magazine is a picture of Michael Coleman on a, on a huge, looks like about to be barreling left. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what's the story of that? I don't really know the story, just that, that you were out there and someone was taking pictures because it was pretty epic surf for you, for me. And um, that the picture that got into Surfer Magazine, the caption that went with it was something like, you know, Mike Coleman biting it main style. <laughs> because he looks like he's about to just, what's the term? do a face plant or something, get pitched off the board. Um, but it's a pretty awesome... So at that break, usually it, it was right, but occasionally there's a left, mm-hmm. and that's good for you because you're a goofy foot. Yeah. Right, so there are rocks on this beach too at certain tides, and so when you went left mm-hmm. and you're getting carried along in that really beautiful wave, mm-hmm. then suddenly there's the rocks right there. Mm-hmm. So, so you were bailing mm-hmm. with a purpose. Not getting ditched by the way. Yeah, that year all of his friends were razzing him about that, giving him a hard time. I'm sure they were. How could they resist? <laughs> yeah, so only recently um, the person who took the photo was posting some old retro photos, and that one came up and she put the story of what really happened um, corroborating Michael's perspective. (laughs) You were actually narrowly avoiding certain doom. What did he just say? <laughs> he said he remembers talking to someone when he came out of the water and they were saying, what the f*** were you thinking? <laughs> <laughs> Going left on that wave. Yeah. Uh, yeah, you can, if you look at the picture, you can tell that there is a rock revealing itself yeah. at the bottom. All right, so uh, you, we were talking, Ruth was not here. But we were talking about uh, the the time around your diagnosis and how you, you know, handled work, and your insights about leaving work. Would you be willing to share any of that? So you were diagnosed with ALS. You went in for 
you know, some other reason you thought just pinched shoulder nerve yeah. that was affecting yeah. your snowboarding. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, so you were diagnosed pretty quickly with ALS, but you didn't feel certain yet that that was a correct diagnosis. So you didn't want to tell anyone, including me, mm -hmm. um, but you definitely didn't want to tell anyone at work. You wanted to just keep going. Mm -hmm. um, until that was confirmed. Well, what work is a big part of a man's ego. You were afraid to give up the thing that you felt like that you were successful at. Right. It took you a while to come to terms with the thought of, of not working. Mm -hmm. So you continued working for two years without telling anyone at that work that you had ALS. Mm -hmm. In hindsight, that's the only thing you regret around that time is not, not letting go of work sooner because you were, you were working for the wrong reasons. You gave your notice. We went right to Costa Rica after that. And you never went back to work. You gave your notice. Yeah, it's a small town. You saw people afterwards, and 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 uh, yeah, that was very. You know, people were great. People were really supportive, and. Um, that was all good, but I think that was probably a good way for you to do it, rather than, um, you know, give a notice and stay there and have to go through a lot of emotional goodbyes. It, w it was easier to, you know, make that break, go away on a nice surf vacation, <laughs> and then come back and deal with the aftermath. Yeah, that was the trip. After you left work, though, that's true, when you couldn't surf. Just standing in the waves. The waves were so big that they were knocking you over. It was super hard. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the, uh, one of the reasons, as I told you before I told Michael and mentioned to you when we were talking earlier, is that uh, I've had this sort of mysterious, undiagnosed situation, health challenge, mm -hmm. health challenge that I've been dealing with for the last few years, which has at times affected my ability to surf. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and I've been unable to surf really in the way that I have developed a, a taste for. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and it's, it's been a really interesting transition um, of acceptance and kind of the mystery, embracing the mystery of it, like not knowing what tomorrow is going to bring and, and realizing that at some tomorrow, every surfer will be done surfing. I mean, this mm -hmm. is the nature of, of life. And since surfing is the best part of life, it's, you know, mm -hmm. <laughs> that's it. Uh, and, and it really, it has been, well, it's been maddening and very sad at point, you know, points for me to think about not being able to surf for, you know, a week or a month or however long it's been. Um, I've also found it really helpful to have had those, the, the lessons that surfing has, has taught me. Um, is that, has that been true for you since not being able to surf? Surfing's all about adapting, adapting to the situation. 
So being able to adapt and keep going forward, that, I mean, that's what ALS is all about, too. I mean, that's, it's all about adapting, accepting and adapting. <laughs> so I, I say that I can remember you saying early on that, you know, when you couldn't surf anymore was when you would be ready to let go and you don't you don't remember saying that and, and clearly that hasn't come to pass but we there were a lot of conversations you know soon after an ALS diagnosis about you know you know you're going to be going through this you know all of this these losses losses of abilities and you know losses of things you know that you used to enjoy so much and so we saw this film uh, consider the conversation, and it really is about end of life choices. And there's a, it was this really um, just moving part about this person that he had this notion of this list of a hundred things. Mm-hmm. You um, you write a hundred things. You think of a hundred things that you love and that you enjoy. And as you as you age or have a debilitating disease you lose the ability to have or do those things. And for each person, the point at which your life is no longer meaningful, the number will be different, you know? Mm-hmm. Like for, for somebody, it might be if they can't do 20 things on that list, you know, the rest of them aren't even big enough to make mm-hmm. life worthwhile, or that's what you think mm-hmm. at that point. But for somebody else, if they still have one thing on that list that they can still do, mm-hmm. they might want to stay alive, mm-hmm. you know? And so we were having those kind of conversations about what would the things on anybody's list be, you know, which things would be at the top of the list, you know, what, you know, when would you really feel like life is no longer worth living? Is it, you know, when you can't walk, when you can't talk, when you can't sing, when you can't eat by yourself, or when you can't surf. And I, I think mm. that's when I remember it from. It was around the time of the conversation mm. about that movie. And you were like, ugh, if I couldn't surf. Mm. <laughs> like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to live. And now mm. we're, you know, five or six years out from that, and you no longer surf, but mm. you're, you certainly... You know, you're living. Mm-hmm. So you found that your list does have a lot of things on it besides surfing that you still want to live for. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. I, I, I wonder if back at the time when you, like before you lost the ability to surf, you may have been imagining that, well, when I can't surf, I can't do this, I can't do this, I can't, I, like I won't be able to do so many things, but it, it wasn't really that way. Surfing is a highly skilled um, endeavor, right? So when you lost the ability to surf, you really still could do a lot of other things. I mean, you really started getting into the motorcycle after that. <laughs> so, um, but back then when you were thinking, oh, if I can't surf, I might not want to live, you weren't really envisioning all the other things that you still could do. Mm-hmm. And, and, and also just the whole life of life with other people, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> that is a good point. Thank you, honey. 
What did he say? He told me that was a good point I made. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. So you're realizing you, you had a passion for surfing, but really surfing's just a part of your life. And you've, you're realizing, this is what you're saying, that you actually had a passion for life. Mm-hmm. And surfing was just a part of that passion for life. Mm-hmm. And you still have that. You still consider yourself a surfer. Even though he's not surfing, he feels like he's still a surfer because you're still so in tune with the surf and the conditions. And many other things that surfing teaches are still a part of your life today. Relevant to your life today. As we were talking about before, the patience. Resilience, bravery. He said this really interesting little observation the other day that I had never considered. He was saying that so um, it, with ALS, when you lose, you know, muscle, you that includes you know tongue and throat, and so swallowing can be a challenge and aspiration. Choking can be a danger, and so he does aspirate and choke a little bit sometimes. And this is just such a strange connection. He said that he feels like he's able to get through that because of skills he learned from surfing. When you get when you get pounded and knocked under, and you're rolling around, having to hold your breath underwater and stay calm, and you know find your way through it and find your way up, that that skill set is what he uses to stay calm when he needs to clear his throat Mm -hmm. and he's literally not breathing for Mm -hmm. a little bit because there's an obstruction but he is able to maintain calm Mm -hmm. and not freak out because he learned that from doing it surfing Mm -hmm. hold on don't panic Don't hurry, the moment it will pass. Keep your calm so you'll, so you'll be there when it passes. Yeah. Keep your bearings. So persistence, like you, persistence obviously is a part of surfing. Right? You have to keep going and trying. You're saying that now with ALS and how it's affected you, you have to be persistent just in your walking, just staying on your feet. You have to be persistent and, and aware. Did you say that? Determined. In, in surfing, you have to be determined to get out through the waves, out through the break. So now it's determination to not let ALS rule your life. Yeah. I think balance too. I mean, this isn't that isn't a a, a lesson like a, a cognitive lesson, but it's a body lesson that all the time spent on a surfboard. It's so much about 
balance and same with snowboarding right mm -hmm. the balance mm -hmm. and I wonder if you know all of that time doing those sports where you're you're mm -hmm. off, getting off balance but you recover your balance mm -hmm. it's off balance and recover your balance mm -hmm. you know that's that's what it's all about mm -hmm. and that because the the medical people are amazed that mm -hmm. you're still on your feet mm -hmm. <laughs> so mm -hmm. I think it gave you some really great mm -hmm. balance you're a pretty good surfer. Uh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> I, 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 <laughs> he thinks so. <laughs> In his own humble opinion. Yes. <laughs> Very interesting. And Ruth, you never wanted to surf? Did you try it? I never really tried much. I mean, I paddled around on a board and... Mm -hmm. I don't know. I didn't. I did not have the persistence for it in Maine. Certainly, you know, I swim in the water in Maine, but to to be in the cold water in Maine, also doing something really hard. I just, mm -mm, it didn't. I don't know. It didn't call to me. No. It wasn't. Didn't sound fun. As Michael said earlier, motorcycling was his adaptation, the way he found to nurture his passion for life by setting out on adventures that challenge and inspire him. I asked Michael and Ruth to tell me a little more about Michael's motivation for taking long trips on his bike to remote places like Nova Scotia and Hudson Bay, where there's no one around, just in case. He always wanted to do this motorcycle trip because you have to be independent and self-sufficient. These, you know, back road, you have to, you have to have fuel with you. You have to have all your gear, and you're out in the middle of freaking nowhere all by yourself. <laughs> you want? He wanted to do it before he could not. I mean, time is ticking you know with your physical abilities so back then you were thinking that you might be dying in the hospital within a year or so so you wanted to really get out there and challenge yourself physically before you died yeah so that's why was that your question about why he took that adventure absolutely and, and did that happen after you had stopped surfing the motorcycle adventures well, he did, I think, three really big, long, remote ones like that, and then, which might have overlapped with the time when you had to get done surfing, because you did, you took some falls on the motorcycle. So when he began falling on the motorcycle, because he didn't have the strength in his legs, when you come to a stop, you got to put your leg down. Um, then he decided he wanted to be able to continue motorcycling so he his adaptation was um, to get a sidecar mm -hmm. and he still has one so one when he got the motorcycle with sidecar you took trips with that too and mm -hmm. one notable one when you got your BMW you went from here all the way across country by yourself to Arizona mm -hmm. and back wow <laughs> yeah motor motorcycling was a passion for him too and that continues right so his motorcycles with sidecar is in a barn just down the road and he's hoping to get it out any day now and see whether that's still going to be a possibility this summer so what i heard you want to back up just a little a minute when you were talking about how you still consider yourself a surfer it sounded to me like you were saying that you can you can be at the water and look at the waves and you still have a surfer's relationship with them you're still kind of engaged with them in that mm -hmm. same way um, and this is one of the things that that 
this is one of the ideas that has emerged over time as, as I've been doing these interviews and thinking more about Waves to Wisdom, is that it, on some level it is fundamentally a question about relationship and the practices that enhance certain kinds of, of relationships. Um, and I think most of us, not just in this culture, but just as humans, we, in all relationships, we really tend to get a little bit clingy and desperate and scared all the time. Um, and I think that that in some ways is maybe, at least in this moment, for me, one of the most in- inspiring parts of your story is that this, this fundamental part of your identity endures uh, beyond anything that you can or can't do with your body because it's about your relationship with this thing, the ocean, and, and all of the things that, it t- that it's taught you. Is that, is that a fair characterization? Absolutely. Is there anything that you can think of to add to that that I might have missed? To him, it doesn't feel like it's been five years since he surfed. It's in his mind, it's in his heart. He still has a deep relationship with the ocean. Intellectually, you know that you cannot surf. But in your bones, you feel like you're still surfing. That you don't have to, you don't have to be still surfing to have a relationship and a connection to the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a lot of things. I mean that that you have for for anybody, for any human. Like as you get older, there are things that you know you did you know or that you had that you can no longer do or have but it doesn't they're not erased entirely from your from your being it's still there it's still part of you whether it's you know the memories of it the physical memory of it or the things that you learned and took from it how long did it take you to get good how long did it take you until you felt like you were good, I should ask? He probably felt like he was good right away. <laughs> That's his personality. <laughs> Is there anything else that you would like to tell people about surfing or waves or life, anything? You had a good partner? I, 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 yeah, I clear. I think anybody in a relationship, a good relationship with someone else, when that person has a passion, you support that passion. Absolutely. He probably came back in a better mood than he left. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, it was yeah. a win-win. And we all got to go on a lot of great beach trips. Thank you both so much. Thank you. I really appreciate you sharing your stories. A lot of great beach trips could sound like a bunch of vacations, fun but fleeting. But Michael's story seems to me a powerful demonstration of the theme I found in my own life of outdoor pursuits, and more recently, this dedication to an ocean-centered practice. Ours is a culture that values wellness and scientific research that supports it, sometimes to our peril. Everyone my age will remember the low-fat orthodoxy of our youth and the processed, packaged, fat-free foods that stock the shelves of many of our pantries. 
There's plenty of new scientific research showing the benefits of activities in natural settings, like surfing, and I'll post some of that in the coming weeks. But Michael's story is more persuasive to me than any research. A passion for life that takes the form of devotion to a kind of fluid, fully embodied activity, like surfing, well, it offers so many potential benefits of joy and wisdom, none of which are necessarily dependent on that ultimately undependable life circumstance, physical health. For more information about our ocean-centered retreats, coaching, or to inquire about sponsoring this podcast, visit wavestowisdom.com.